G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. We want to talk family law this hour. We'll open our talkback lines. You might like to contribute to our conversation. Stephen Potts back with us, family lawyer and also the managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. We're going to be talking about family law and uh, uh, from previous conversations, a little like this one, family law issues are much the same right around Australia and each of the states and territories. And if you do have a question, you'll be able to call us. The talkback line open on one eight hundred three sixteen. 316. Stephen Potts, welcome back to 2020. It's good to be back, Neil. Stephen, uh, before we get under uh, underway with uh, some of the things we want to talk about, and we're going to be talking about who's who in the family court system today. But let's just uh, let's just talk a, a little, you know, just a heart to heart conversation when it comes to issues when you are a Christian and people who are going through family breakdown, marriages disintegrating. Uh, divorce proceedings, you find yourself in court. Uh, sometimes this just doesn't seem right. It uh, It isn't what anybody sets out to happen, but uh, we're not people with our head in the sand. These things do happen, and people like you are employed to uh, try and pick up the pieces often. Uh, when it's, when it's a, a fact where uh, you're going through this sort of dreadful time of your life, uh, the value of being a Christian in all of that. I think it's incredible, Neil, incredible value um, because if you're an individual and you're going through the process, you can understand that as traumatic as it might be, God is still sovereign. So it's not completely um, out of control. It might be unknown, but it's not out of control. I think from the perspective of of being a practitioner who's a Christian, I think it, it enables me to share with them, with a client on a level that they might not otherwise be able to enjoy with a non Christian lawyer. They might want to make a decision or the way that they structure their decision-making is going to be reflective of their belief system. If you've got a lawyer who's not a Christian who you're trying to explain that to, it could often be discounted or um, not really given the same weight, perhaps, as you might want to attribute to that decision. And, of course, as we've said before, you know, our whole focus really here in a Christian radio ministry is to support people, to encourage people, to nurture those marriages, to nurture strong families so that they don't get to breaking point. That's right. But there's all sorts of reasons why people would get to a breaking point and things would uh, collapse around them. And you're seeing this every day. And uh, today we want to be able to cut through some of the the uh, you know the difficulties in understanding the process. And so, what's the first thing we would understand if we're talking about going through a process in the family court? I guess just understanding who's who. That's right, and I think one of the things that you've got to remember is that family law is just like any other industry or area. It has its own uh, jargon, its own lingo. People are given titles and names. You think, who on earth is this person? What authority do they have? Can they make a decision on my behalf? Are they going to compel me to agree to something that I'm not comfortable with? So I think it's important for people to understand who you're likely to come into contact with throughout the whole process from separation all the way through, if it's a worst-case scenario, to a judge making a decision about arrangements for your children or for your property. 
whoever you might come into in that spectrum, it's important to know the role that they fulfil so that you can cooperate in that process best. Because the the better you can cooperate in the process, the more likely you are to have a, a satisfactory or as pleasant as possible uh, outcome. So the idea is, as far as possible, to avoid getting to that end of the spectrum where a judge is making a decision, because when that happens, most of the control is taken out of your hands. Whereas if you are able to um, speak, for example, very early when there's some difficulties in the marriage to a counsellor, some of those issues can be addressed and divorce and separation and arrangements for the care of your children never come onto the radar again because the issue itself or the issues themselves have been dealt with. Is it a fair thing to assume that there would be various points throughout the process? You know, when you talk about the process right from the marriage breakdown to, as you say, uh, a judge who's actually taking control and you don't have any more say, but are there various points along that process where you're given an opportunity to resolve the issues and even reunite, even see marriages uh, on their way with a a fresh start? Does that happen? Absolutely. In terms of opportunities to to settle or resolve, they happen right up until the time that the judge hands down an order. Mm. And if you're in the system, um, it usually takes around about 12 to 24 months between when you first file an application in the court through to when a judge makes a decision. So there's plenty of time between point A and point B to reach an agreement. And that agreement sometimes does involve people reconciling and being able to put those differences aside and, and deal with the problems that have led to the separation. And if that can happen, then there's no need for the court to be involved. What sort of really complex issues uh, are most people uh, experiencing in their uh, marriage breakup and through this whole process through the family court? I mean, obviously, uh, the first things that come to mind are, uh, you know, obviously children, uh, custody issues and things like that. But uh, the financial breakdown of what happens if you're dividing up assets, uh, these are the sorts of things that that come to mind for me. Are these the the, the type of things that are typical? They're typically the two most most common areas are what to do with um, the the property that's been accumulated during a relationship and also what arrangements should be made for the care of children. And I think we're seeing increasing levels of complexity just as with the nature of people's relationships being more complex, Um, children coming from um, homes which are perhaps not as stable as they have been in the past and also with property pressure that people are under because of mortgage stress because of business arrangements where a lot of their their capital might be tied up in business arrangements. Or sometimes you have a combination of those two issues together. For example, a couple separate and one person gets a job interstate and wants to relocate with the children. So then you've got this terrible situation where the children's issues need to be sorted out, but they're also quite dependent on people's financial circumstances because their job may not be available in the state in which they were living anymore. A, A good example of that would be say, Western Australia or Queensland, which have been really heavily dominated by the mining industry, as that starts to wind down, people might not have jobs in those areas anymore and might need to relocate to another state for their to be able to maintain their uh, career, but that causes a lot of stress on the family. Let me take you back to something you said just as we were introducing uh, this discussion today. Uh, you said, you know, the family law uh, industry 
is there that helps people take care of these sorts of uh, arrangements when they want to uh, separate and then divorce. That word industry is important because uh, the image of lawyers is, uh, you know, the the image of lawyers, uh, you know, people that tell lawyer jokes all the time. I'm sure you can probably tell us a few yourself. They're not particularly flattering. (laughs) They're not flattering. Uh, You know, often lawyers are compared to sort of vampires, you know, blood-sucking vampires. And and I've got to say that Stephen Potts doesn't resemble anything that you've ever seen in the movies. (laughs) But uh, interestingly, people would be perhaps even thinking, you know, what's a family lawyer wanting to... Uh, give this sort of free advice over the radio, uh, talking about these sorts of things when uh, when you'd be, you know, typical family lawyers might be just sort of waiting for you to come through the front door to, you know, to make their extra next dollar. Uh, we've s- spoken about this before. The idea of actually helping people to resolve these issues as a Christian family lawyer uh, helps people not to come and see you. That's right. And I think that the important thing to understand is that not everybody can e- a afford to see a lawyer or B, be able to communicate all of the issues in a, legal, um, in a legal context. Not every issue that arises in a family has a legal solution. Lots of, lots of issues that arise really have personal or relational solutions. So the importance, of a, I think, of a family law is to be able to identify what the issue is and then be able to put people in, in contact with the person who can actually help them. So, for example, if the issue is a, a miscommunication in the relationship, and that's best going to be solved by speaking to someone like a counsellor who can enable them to reopen those channels of discussion rather than seeing a seeing that as an opportunity to go, well, well, we can't communicate, therefore we'll have to divide all of our property and make a different arrangement for our children. No, well, that's, that's a ridiculous way of dealing with the, the underlying issue. So part of the reason I enjoy having these conversations with you is that we can say, well, let's not be so narrow-minded and to think there's only a legal solution here. There's lots of different solutions that are available and we can work with the right professionals to be able to achieve an outcome that's going to be best for people. And obviously people listening into our conversation who may be going through this sort of thing uh right around the different states and territories around Australia, they can't all come and see you. But is there advantage in going to see a Christian family lawyer over someone who doesn't have a faith foundation in their practice? Because the likely uh, people that you might uh, you know, set up uh, with referrals and that sort of thing might actually include a local church, might include some pastoral counsel rather than a secular counsellor who may not have the same sort of faith issues at heart. Yeah, that's certainly true. It would be a bit unfair to um, counsellors in general and family lawyers in general to say that you wouldn't get good service from them just because they're not Christians. But certainly if if a, if a client is a Christian and they want to have somebody who they can speak to who understands where they're coming from, then it's important to be able to uh, know that you can then refer them on to someone else who will share that same view. It's quite common for people, pastors in particular, to refer people to me, either people from their congregation or just people that their congregation has had some kind of contact with. And uh, they might come in and sit in on those initial meetings with the client, for example, just so that there's somebody else there who can understand and listen and talk with the client about it later. Sometimes um, counsellors come in, but that's not as common. It's more more likely that I would say to a person, well, you live in this particular area. I know some counsellors who are in that particular area who might be available, and I give them the names of two or three that might be uh, suitable to, to meet them, perhaps out of work hours or during the week.
Stephen, uh, we've been talking about who's who in the family court. Let's talk about some of the personalities you're likely to come into contact with. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, someone like yourself, a family lawyer. Uh, where would you fit in the process, though? Uh, I, I guess people go through a series of things when their marriage is breaking down before they actually get to you. That's right. Um, we've talked about counsellors. So often people have been to counselling before they come and see a lawyer, and we typically only get involved if that counselling's been unsuccessful. Sometimes people come and see us before they have counselling and they would like to know what their options might be if they separate and then they go off and have some counselling and they're able to resolve it. Sometimes people come and see us also after they've been through a mediation process. There's a number of organisations around Australia who have contracts with the federal government to provide quite subsidised mediation. That's primarily for children's matters. And so they provide usually three or so hours of mediation and out of that, they, they sometimes receive a certificate saying that they were unable to resolve it, for example, or this is the arrangement that they came up with. Sometimes they they come to us having resolved some of the issues at that mediation and say, these are the five or six issues that still are outstanding, and we'd like to have some way of formalising that so that we're not in a situation where it might break down and we have an argument. So often our involvement is at that stage. People have separated. Sometimes they've been separated for quite a while and they're typically coming to us with either some kind of ad hoc arrangement that's been made either for primarily for the care of their children, but sometimes um, also they've made a, a temporary arrangement about their property. But of course, it's very difficult to sustain two households. If people have separated and they're living in two different premises, it becomes a very expensive way of living. So most people tend to move fairly quickly on that because they can't really afford to be paying two lots of rates and two lots of electricity and two lots of gas and all of those kinds of expenses that come with running two households. Our hearts always go out to children who are uh, sometimes described as victims when it comes to divorce. Uh, children are often being fought over and uh, sometimes you, I guess, find yourself in the middle of those sorts of circumstances and arguments. That's right. But fortunately, there's a couple of ways in which the arrangements for the care of children can be, I guess, the the, the, uh, the anger and the animosity there can be mitigated because the thing that uh, I always tell clients is that the Family Law Act says that when it, when a judge makes a decision, the judge has to consider the child's best interests as the paramount consideration. So if you have a judge who's going to be making a decision about what's in your child's best interests, surely you as parents can reach an agreement about what's going to be in your child's best interests. Now, not everybody can, but once you take people through that thought process and open to them the idea that a judge is going to be doing what you ought to be doing, which is making a decision in your children's best interests, the question becomes, okay, well, how do we do that? And so some of those mediation organisations that I spoke about before, they run what they call a child-inclusive program. So what happens there is the child might speak with a social worker before the mediation takes place. It's not, a, it's not a situation where the child is interviewed about who they'd like to live with, but they're interviewed by someone who's a specialist who understands the nature of child psychology or those kinds of thought, process that, thought processes that children have. And that person then gives some feedback to the parents. So the child doesn't sit in the mediation. The child's not telling one parent or the other who he or she wants to live with. And that the person who might speak to the child might temper some of those responses so that uh, it doesn't derail the mediation process. But that's one way of children's views being taken into account so that the parents can be a bit more informed when they make a decision about what's in their child's best interests. And there's other ways too. So um, where, where issues are a bit more complex and people have the money to do so, they can engage what they call a, what we call a family report writer. So 
a family report writer is a person, usually a social, a social worker, sometimes a psychologist, who has experience working with uh, separated families. They're usually appointed by court. So once you're in the court system, almost certainly a social worker or a family report writer will be uh, appointed to prepare a report about what's in a child's best interest, the nature of the child's attachments with each of their parents, all of those things that are significant to their ongoing care. But you don't have to go to court to get a family report done. You can agree with your with your spouse or with the other parent, well, let's go and engage this person privately. Let's not pay lots of money to prepare court documents and end up in an animosity-fueled um, situation where it's very hard to agree. Let's, let's shortcut all of that and go straight to a person. Let's sit down with that person. He or she will ask us some questions, and they typically will prepare a report. It might be 15, 20-odd pages long. They'll put out the views of each of the parents. They, if the children are old enough to be able to express a view, that they might uh, include some detail about those views that the child has held. And then they'll make some recommendations, which the parents can, they're free to accept or reject, but it, it, it's another piece of evidence that goes into the mix to help them make a decision about what's going to be best for their kids. Interestingly, when the final decision would come from the family court judge, uh, he is probably, or she, uh, is probably primarily guided by all of these reports that would be prepared in the lead-up. So what you're saying is you could short-circuit the system not actually have to go before the judge, but these reports might actually inform you of the situation in your marriage and your family. That's exactly right. And, and my experience is that most people who, who do that process of a family report and then sit down and think about the recommendations that that person's made, more often than not, they will resolve the, the dispute. And usually within a couple of weeks of the receipt of that report, because the report is not the be-all and end-all of a child's parenting arrangement. There's lots of reasons why a family report writer might make a recommendation, but it might be based on information that's not necessarily clear at the time. And a judge is not bound to accept what a family report writer says. He or she has to exercise their own discretion about what's going to be in a child's best interest. But a family report is something that is independent, it's expert, it's not going to be tainted by the fact that uh, it's a he said versus she said. It's a person who has met independently with, the, with each of the parties and on often with the children, and sometimes also with significant other people. So, for example, if there are grandparents involved or if, there are, if people have been separated for a while and they might have repartnered, then the new partners, they might be involved in that process as well. So it gives the court and the parents a much better idea of all of these wider family dynamics that are in play and it gives them some resources to be able to make a decision about what's in their best interest. And the judge can accept that. They could accept part of it. They might say, yes, that's a good outcome and I'll make a recommendation along those lines, but they're not bound to do that. It's Neil with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour, Stephen Potts, family lawyer, and we're talking through the issue of divorce and who's who in the family court system. If you find yourself in the circumstance where you have to go through the family court system because there's a divorce in your family, and sometimes it's you that's going through it, other times it's a family member, you might have a question or a comment to make. Our talkback line open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. In fact, let's take a call, uh, Stephen. Sandy is in Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Sandy. Welcome along to 2020. Hello, thank you. Sandy, what's your question or your comment on our discussion today? Um, my question would just be um, in regards to somebody I, I love dearly. Um, after years of abuse and trying to go to counselling and being fingers pointed, it's not me, it's you, 
um, my the two little boys were starting to um, be badly disadvantaged because of the whole situation. And this young girl just took her car um, that she had bought, clothes for the children, clothes for herself, and left the home just like that. Obviously, um, her husband got everything to cause the whole household. Um, but she, it's four years later, and she's not interested in getting anything financially for herself. She just wanted to get out of the abusive relationship and marriage and um, the bad effect it was having on her children. And um, she knows she needs to you know, get the divorce papers so that she can carry on with her life. They've been for mediation, and um, unfortunately that didn't turn out too well because of um, circumstances. And, um, yeah, I, I would just like to know... In, in Australia, in, in what is the law? What does she do next? Sandy, um, one of the things that uh, might just help me a little bit to understand the context, you said that there'd been a mediation, but it had been unsuccessful. Yeah, there, there was mediation, um, and they went back for mediation, and then I think it was um, October last year, um, in mediation, um, she was sort of forced in. My, well, this young lady was forced into a corner to um, sign paperwork that she didn't want to sign, and actually went back to that mediator two days later and said, "You know, I didn't. This is the reason why I don't want to sign that." Yeah. But unfortunately, she had a stroke, and um, you know, couldn't continue with this whole story. And I think she's got a lot of fear to even try because she doesn't know where to go to next, sure. who you go to next. Sure. When, when people go through a mediation, depending on who the mediator is, most um, mediators are what we call family dispute resolution practitioners. That's a particular title that's given to them under the Family Law Act. Mm. And they've got the, the power to issue a particular type of certificate under the Family Law Act, which says either that people didn't come to mediation or it wasn't appropriate or they did come and they used their best efforts or they did come and they didn't use their best efforts. Mm. But once that certificate has issued, it's really in the hands of either of the parents about whether they make an application to the court about the parenting arrangements for their kids. Mm-hmm. So if this uh, if this young girl doesn't um, want to have orders made by the court, then if she does nothing, no orders will be made. But if the father says, well, I'm not satisfied with that particular outcome and makes an application, what he needs to be able to show firstly is that he's got one of those certificates. Mm. And then if he's got one of those certificates, he can make his application to the court for orders about the time that he might spend with these children. Well, because um, her heart is absolutely for the children and what's in the best interest of the children, um, their father has asked for shared care, which means one week by mum and one week by dad. Um, and because she wants the boys to grow up with a father figure um, and she has allowed that, you know, the one week by mum, one week by dad thing, and the boys are coping really well because, you know, obviously we pray and and try and guide them and teach them the right way. Um, But to actually just go through that process of how does she get the divorce paper now without... Because he's an attacker, sure, and he'll want to sue, and he'll want this and that. All she wants well, is just to make sure that her boys will be looked after. Yes. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about three different concepts then that are, that are kind of related, but it might help to, to draw the distinction between each of them. The first is that 
Divorce in Australia is really just the legal recognition that a relationship has come to an end. Just because you're divorced doesn't uh, change the ownership of property. It's just a recognition that the relationship's come to an end. And it's the ground for divorce is that people have been separated for 12 months. Now, that's different to a property settlement because a, a property settlement is the adjustment of people's interests in the assets and the liabilities and the superannuation that, they've, incu- property, yeah, yeah. that they've accumulated while they're together. Mm. And that's something that can be done by consent. It can mm-hmm. be done before a divorce. It can be done after a divorce, but there are time limitations that start to apply after a divorce. But that's so there's the divorce, there's the property settlement. The third concept though is is child support, which is something that operates outside of the property settlement and divorce um, scheme. Mm. And the way that works is that the, the Department of Human Services in Australia is uh, who administers that through the what was called the child support agency, but it, various government departments change their names all the yeah, time. It's yeah. still child support. But but child support is a formula that's calculated based on the amount of time that children spend in each parent's care, mm. the income that's earned by each of their parents, mm. and the age of the children. Mm. So typically when children are in a shared care arrangement and the parents are earning comparable income, then there might not be any child support paid. But if even if children are in a shared care arrangement, but there's a disparity between the parent's incomes, then the parent with a higher income will typically be paying money to the parent with the lower income to help um, help with the assistance of the children. Yep. Now, that's something that doesn't have to go through court. That can be done simply by making an application to the, to the child support agency yep. for an assessment. Has that been put in place? Yeah, that has been put in place. Um, but once again, I don't understand, and neither does she, because um, she's got a partner that pays... Uh, about seven times the amount for one child yep. than what she gets for her two boys. Yep. And the year that she's been in recovery after the stroke and having no income, you know, she just wouldn't get anything for two months. It, it's just very confusing. Yeah, and, and and that's because, like I said, it's it's a formula. So if if, mm. she, if, if this girl has repartnered, repartnered and her partner is paying a higher amount, that might be because her partner is not seeing... Uh, his child or children as often. Mm. It might also be because there's a significant difference in the earning capacity of each mm. of the, or the, mm. the, the income of each of the parents. Yeah, so one that. of the things that um, that this girl could do is see whether it would be appropriate to have an adjustment made through the child support agency. You can put in a notice of... Um, uh, you can ask for the assessment to be adjusted because of things like... Um, a greater need that the children might have or changes in people's financial circumstances. Yep, yep. So if, if she had been earning an income which then fell because of the stroke, mm. then what she can do is contact the agency and say, my income's not that high anymore, it's actually a lot lower because I've been off work for however many months. Mm. And the, the agency can take that into account and adjust the formula accordingly so that more money's paid. Okay. And so from, from year on... Um, she just basically needs to go to the court to get the legal recognition divorce paper. That's right. Um, because uh, the children, if the children are under 18, then yeah. uh, she'll need to attend court when the divorce application goes through. But if it's something that's agreed with the hus- the, her husband, then um, they can file the document together and neither of them will need to go to court. Well, Sandy from Mackay, hope we've uh, been able to cover all of that. Uh, is that a, an enlightening a conversation, yes, Sandy? Yes, it has been an Fantastic. enlightening conversation. I thank you very much for the opportunity to actually just get a one-on-one um, talk.
walk in and answer. Well, uh, just wonderful to have you part of our talkback conversation today here on 2020. Sandy from Mackay in Queensland, thanks so much for being with us. It's Neil with you, our special guest Stephen Potts, family lawyer, talking through issues of divorce and what happens in the family court, who's who in the family court system. And uh, while we always talk about supporting marriages and supporting families to see that they uh, grow and they are nurtured in great ways and with faith in God, we recognise there are circumstances that people find themselves in and talking through those today with Stephen. Stephen, before we take another call, uh, sometimes uh, in different relationships, you'll not necessarily have two people who are equally persuasive. Uh, Tell us about possibilities where there are a lopsidedness. Uh, One particular, uh, you know, a husband or a wife, uh, particularly persuasive, particularly assertive. Uh, Can they sort of push things their way? Is there a way that you can remedy that and, uh, and keep it from getting out of hand? That certainly does happen. It it tends to be reflective of the fact, too, that people, when relationships, relationships break down, people are at different stages of the grief cycle. So when someone is a little bit more forceful, the best thing that can be done is to put somebody between the forceful person and the person who might be a little bit more passive or a bit more timid about uh, confronting that person. And that's part of the role that a family lawyer fulfills. They take some of that personalness out of it and, uh, and they put somebody in who can be objective and who can say, well, that proposal is outside the realms of what a court might order or that proposal is within the range that a court might order or that proposal does or does not consider all of these factors so that the other person who might be feeling a little bit intimidated is able to assess objectively what their next step should be. And that sometimes happens in, we talked a bit before about uh, family reports. That certainly can be borne out. Sometimes family reports can be very uh, advantageous shall we say, to one parent over the other. And that might simply be because one person has gone in very timidly or not understanding the process and the other person has gone in and been very forceful or direct or uh, perhaps better prepared for that process. We are taking your calls, 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to be a part of our talkback conversation, let's hear from Pam in Adelaide in South Australia. Hello, Pam. Welcome along to 2020. Well, thank you very much. I've got a question today. Like I said, I'm from Adelaide, South Australia. It's regarding the property. I understand about the divorce part being 12 months and about the children, and that's had to be settled with an intervention order and things like that. But with the property at the moment, he is refusing to give... uh, There's been property settlement. They've sold all their property. She had one before they were married and so on. But he will not give any money whatsoever which means that uh, basically it's many, many, many thousands of dollars of money and is, is she going to have to pay the lot? Sorry, Pam, just, just to clarify, you said, yeah. you said that uh, the, the husband's refusing to uh, pay money. That's right. And um, is, there, yes. is there an order already in place? Over the children, yes, and over her. Um, the properties have been sold, but there's a lot of money still owing to the bank. Okay, so there's a sh- there's a shortfall that's owed to the bank, is there? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Look, this is a situation which, um, sadly, is quite common. It certainly arose a lot after the GFC, where people had borrowed and then that value of their homes started to fall and their mortgages um, were greater. Typically, the answer is found by going back to the mortgage contract and seeing who the names of the borrowers are and whether any guarantees have been given. As a, 
I mean, in the most general sense, most most husbands and wives who borrow money tend to borrow it in joint names. So yeah. what that technically means is that uh, is this uh, is this you or is it a, a friend or a family member? Family member, my daughter and her husband. Okay, yes. Yeah. So what it would typically mean is that your daughter would be what we call jointly and severally liable for that particular debt, which means that if the if there's still a shortfall, the bank can pursue either or both of them, and they're both equally liable for the debt. Now, of course, that presents problems when people, uh, one person, for example, mum might have stepped out of the workforce to look after kids, and dad continues working because mum no longer has the same kind of earning capacity, but as a... As a general principle, um, both of them would be jointly and severally liable for that debt. Right. And, and so sometimes the court, um, sometimes people make an application to the court for one person to take over the responsibility of that debt because the other person just has not got the capacity to uh, to service it. Pam, does that answer your question? It makes it very awkward because he's purposely drawing his job in so that he doesn't have to pay any money. <laughs> So it's, it's very difficult. Well, I mean, that um, if he has done that, that's probably more foolish by him because it's going to affect his credit record as much as it's going to affect her credit record. The court can sometimes look behind what people have, have just done and see what their true earning capacity is, though. So probably the best thing to, to uh, suggest is that your daughter speak with a family lawyer about uh, that particular debt. And if she has a copy of any of the loan documents from the bank, she should take that to the lawyer as well so that he or she can go through those loan documents and work out exactly what her liability is. Okay. Yes. Pam, does that answer your question? It helps a lot. Thank you very, very much. Pam, wonderful to hear from you. Thanks so much for being part of 2020 today. Uh, it just illustrates, doesn't it, just how complicated things can become and uh, when people are, uh, doesn't matter which side, uh, using the family assets and the children against the other uh, becomes very, very, very uncomfortable. It does and often people who are in a power imbalance, a situation of power imbalance are really left not knowing where to turn because they, they're, they're not aware of what assets might be there or how they could use those assets or what a likely outcome from a court is going to be. So I think that, just like I suggested to Pam, the best thing often is to take some of those source documents to a lawyer so that the lawyer can look through them and analyse, okay, this is the legal responsibility that you have or these are the as- these are the assets that are available to be divided because not every asset is a clear, tangible thing like a home. It might be a business and that business might be generating income, but it might not necessarily be seen in particular assets. And it's very common for um, people who have, say, taken a traditional view of a relationship, shall we say, and, and husbands stayed working and mum stepped out of the workforce to look after the kids. Mum might have no understanding of the business arrangements anymore, even if it was a, a business that might have been run together because of the fact that the priorities change and t- there's a limited amount of time and a lot of time is devoted to looking after the kids and she trusts dad to continue to run the business. But then with the passage of time, loses all understanding of all of the intricacies of that business and then no longer has an understanding of what it's worth or what it's doing or what other uh, assets might be accumulated by that business. Tell me how this can snowball, because uh, while we're talking about a single family lawyer, is it usually the case that he has a family lawyer, she has a family lawyer, and you've got big roundtable meetings where everybody's got their lawyer present and all of these things are worked out in a legal framework? 
Yes, that's um, quite common. I mean, one of the war stories that I often tell my clients, I, I try and tell it with a, a bit of encouragement that you don't always end up in a trial, but I had some, some individuals, uh, an individual that I acted for who was extraordinarily wealthy. They had a number of properties that were all, um, all throughout southeast Queensland that required a mediation to settle it. It took two days of mediation. We had a QC as a mediator. Each of the clients had a QC representing them plus me and the partner of another firm on the other side. Each of them also had the partners of an accounting practice who were giving them accounting advice and then there were the clients. So there was eight or nine of us sitting around this table for two days working through all of the issues because we had to work out, for example, not just what the property pool was, but if certain assets were sold, would that give rise to a capital gains tax liability? And how long would that be, uh, how long would they have to pay that particular amount and all of the other taxation consequences? So as the offers go backwards and forwards, the amount of money that the other person has to come up with changes. And in, and in that person's mind, they have to think, okay, well, do I need to sell these three properties now? If I sell those three properties, what's the capital gains tax going to be? What's my net position going to be? So that's a situation where there is multiple people sitting around the table, but we are all working towards the same end, which is to reach an, a just an equitable property settlement, but also that enables them to continue to run their business affairs, for example. Running out of time, uh, let's come back to the value of a family court judge. Because when we talked before about the lopsidedness that can sometimes happen uh, between uh, you know husband and wife, uh, the value of the family court judge ultimately is that uh, that his or her decision is final. There's something very strong about about having that final decision when you've got all these complexities that you go through. That's right. And family court judges are typically people who have been solicitors and then barristers and then they're given an appointment by the government to be a judge. There's two main courts in Australia that deal with family law, the family court and the federal circuit court, and they both have some overlapping jurisdiction. There's about 30-odd family court judges and there are about 60-odd Federal Circuit Court judges, and they deal primarily with all of the children's issues. But that person, every day, sits and reads through affidavits, watches witnesses cross-examined in a witness box, they listen to argument, they read reports from family report writers, they read subpoenaed material from police or from Department of Communities or doctor's records, and all of the time they're filtering that information through the framework of the legislation to say either if it's a property matter, what is just and equitable, or if it's a child or an arrangement for children, what is going to be in these children's best interest? And I can guarantee you they've seen it all, and uh, they're very good at what they do. They're massively overworked, but they're very good at what they do. And even if they do make a mistake, there's still appeals. We're fortunate that we live in a country that has a judicial system that allows for appeals if a decision's incorrect. And Stephen, uh, just uh, in the lead up to the news, uh, local churches, you mentioned earlier, sometimes uh, the local pastor in a church uh, sits alongside people through those early stages mm-hmm. just because there's uh, a need for some level of comfort. Uh, there's also uh, marriage courses that churches run, uh, which obviously are, are not aimed at necessarily just resolving sorts of disputes like this, but they're about enriching marriages. And preventing so you don't, Preventing getting to this point. And really, I, I think it's a scary thing to think of all of this complexity of the process 
uh, you might be actually scared into the idea of, of going and being part of a marriage enrichment course because it might be just the thing that makes a huge difference in your marriage and in your family. What a great topic to be talking about today. We'll talk about uh, a topic similar to this again in the new year, I guess. Stephen Potts, family lawyer. He's managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. Stephen, thanks for being with us today on 2020. Thanks. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.